Welcome to episode 24, Gutai King. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Today we are going to talk about the life uh, and work of renowned 19th century Chinese poet Gu Taiking, who also wrote novels and painted. We're trying out a new format a little bit. Um, we are both working nine to five jobs and we've taken your feedback about the length of episodes into account and those two things have created a perfect storm in our approach to episode research and recording. So we're trying this out. Let us know if you like it because I think we really like it. And I mean, so if it's working for all of us, hooray. And if not, we'll be back to the drawing board, I guess. But so from now on, our plan is one of us will research the life of a writer. The other one will research the work of a writer. And then we're going to tell each other all about it. Um, the simple formula that's, I think, really exciting to both of us yeah we we've kind of shamelessly stolen this formula a little bit from this podcast will kill you which i think we recommended during the yes our hiatus but it's a podcast that we both really enjoy yes and it seems to work for them so we're gonna try it yeah we'll see if it can be applied from epidemiology to literary studies <laughs> ah. um i feel like we should say up front that both of us have spent a significant portion of the last few days on um, pronunciation websites, but we may slip up because we are going on what the internet tells us. Um, so apologies. We all know the internet is very reliable at all times and never fails. <laughs> Although having spoken to each other, it seems like we've been offered different pronunciations of yeah. Gutai King's name. So Yes. So we're... We're gonna try our best, but you, you, you remember, listeners. I can't be relied upon to pronounce Wollstonecraft consistently. So, <laughs> um, or my own name some days. You know, like I don't know. Words out loud are tricky, but we're gonna try. So I'm going to launch into the biography now. Um, I say that, but I have a couple of notes up front. Um, so I found it really difficult to find information about Gu, and I'm following the kind of Chinese um, naming format of referring to her as Gu, which would be her surname. So for example, as far as I'm aware, there's no one biography, and at least there's no biography that's been translated into English. And I really struggled because where I found sources and 
tries to do that thing where you, you find a good source and then you go to their bibliography to try and see what they used and mine their sources. Um, most of those were written in Chinese and most of the scholarly literature seems to be published in Chinese. Which I think is something we should consider when we're, we're wondering why we haven't heard of someone who seems really important to literary history. Is, like, is it because they're primarily stand, studied in a language that isn't English? Yeah, this is a good moment for us to call ourselves out a little bit and say, yeah. in a, um, a Western white-centric worldview, Gu King is lesser known. I don't think that's necessarily the case in China. <laughs> yeah, every... Pretty much every source I read was like, she's one of the most famous women of like, especially imperial Chinese literary history and um, particularly the formats that she wrote in. Yeah. Based on our listeners, I think, I think that for most of you, she may be lesser known. However, if anyone listening knows a lot, we'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Please tell us. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I kind of made a note that we could talk for hours about the problem with, as I say, I said English being assumed to be the academic default, but just English being assumed to be the default. Yeah. Um, also, a lot of the information I found seems to rely on reading her poetry as autobiographical, um, which personally is something I generally caution against. Um, I know it's you, you'll probably talk about how it's somewhat different in this case. Yes. But as a general rule, I think we should probably only really take things to be autobiographical when... The author explicitly states that it is, and ideally avoid seeking autobiography and fiction. Again, this might be something that you'll kind of go back to because one of the sources I was reading did point to the concept of, I think it's the Beiji or collected works that kind of functioned as autobiography in pre-modern China. Yeah. So I don't know that I'll talk about this extensively, but I'll, I'll, I'll just address it a little bit later. Yeah. So I thought we could start by talking a little bit about names. Remember the season intro when we were chatting about how important it is to use the name that an author chose to apply to her published work? Yeah, so throughout the episode we'll refer to Gu King by that name, because as far as I could tell that's the name she published under, um, or the primary one, because I know it's not the only one. But I think we both encountered the same question of names when researching this, because there are a lot of different names that might apply. So from the very start, different sources give different first and surnames for Gu. So while researching, I saw her original surname given as Tsai Lin, and her first name as Chun. That seems to be kind of consistent, and there are different names tacked onto that, but Tsai Lin Chun seems to be a birth name that sticks. She also apparently used the name Tai King Chun, and seems to also use the name Tai King Lauren Chun. Yen Chou Weishi, and Tsai Lin Tai King Chun. Yeah, and then I thought this was interesting and might come into discussion of her work. But Taiking is actually a Taoist name and reflects her philosophy. So according to one source I read, it translates to great clarity. And is the name of one of the heavens of the Shanking school of Taoism. So it's worth noticing that Gu had a few style or courtesy names. And those are names that are given to a person as an adult. And they're kind of additional to the given names. So almost like nicknames, if that's not westernizing it too much but it's a different name that you're known by as an adult and the particular names i've seen associated with her are mike shin and zekun so those, those are the names out of the way have you seen any other different names courtney no i think that that covers it pretty much gu was born into the silent julo 
clan and was a member of the Manchu trimmed blue banner. And she was born in 1799. I couldn't find much about what a man the Manchu trimmed blue banner was. But, um, again, this is all showing that all of my knowledge of history is very westernised and it's specific to pretty much Britain and the US. So again, calling ourselves out. Yeah. Yeah, there really seems to be very little information about her early life, perhaps because it was unhappy. Um, and I wasn't particularly able to find anything to indicate where she was born. One of the sources that I was reading was saying, um, especially because of a lot, a lot of what we know about her life comes from her writing, that she didn't write much about her early life because it was unhappy and therefore we don't know a lot about it. So the Biographical Dictionary of Chinese Women says that she grew up in the Fragrant Hills suburb of Beijing, where her education focused particularly on literature and art. And according to that same source, she had an older brother, Xu Feng, a younger sister, Zaxian, and a younger brother, Xi Wei. And did you read differently? or No, no, I just didn't see that at all. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of buried in the information, but it does... And it kind of suggested she might have had more siblings, but she certainly had these three. And all of the children were skilled at poetry and writing. It seems like that was a really important part of their education. There are also suggestions in her poetry that the siblings were separated at some point and that the family lived in poverty and may well have travelled over great distances. I did read one source, so... The main sources that I read for this was... I read. I think we both read the same PhD dissertation. And I was also reading a master's thesis and the master's thesis is really interesting because it's focusing on her networks of women that she was involved in, but it's skeptical that she actually visited these places such as Guangdong and Hangzhou. Um, and I kind of tend to agree with that source. So that author's arguments against this reading are the same that I might make. Um, basically she writes about being in those, both those places and kind of references landmarks and that's been used to, say that she went there mm -hmm. I think it's harder to I think it's hard to make the argument that she definitely went there because she references it in her poetry because especially when you're kind of embedded in artistic communities you can describe the places that you've never been to based on what other people have said so I feel like we could both just reference the key landmarks in our each other's hometowns despite not having seen them yes definitely because what she does she says something like oh i remember looking over the lake which is something you could get from someone else one of the sources i was reading suggested that her father might have been Yi Shaifen, who seems to have had quite diplomatic roles like being an aide to officials but the really important member of her family when it comes to her kind of life story is her grandfather Yi chang so at one time he was the provincial governor of Gansu, but was involved in Hu Zhongqiao's, I've seen it phrased as literary inquisition, and I didn't do much research into this, and I should have done more. But something about his poetry was controversial, and Yi Chang Gu's grandfather was involved, and because of his involvement was ordered to complete suicide. Wow. I would love to know more. I mm -hmm. tried to find more and I struggled. 
this year has just been so brutal for trying to do anything that takes time. This is one of the ones where I'm like, I wish I'd had more time because this is probably findable. But Yeah. Well, and I think we were talking about this before, but there was there were several promising sources that I saw. And then I would have had to go to the British Library to look at them, which right. is in normal times would have been fine. Yeah. We're recording this while the UK is in a second lockdown, so I'm not supposed to leave my house apart from for essentials. And the mm. British Library is definitely closed. So it's frustrating. That's a complete aside. <laughs> so I mentioned that Goo is not the surname that she was, she had at birth. And some people have suggested that she came to use that surname to create distance between herself and this criminal past. Her precise reasoning, like that's that's convincing, but the precise reasoning is unknowable. Most scholars speculate that the reason she really had to conceal this past was to facilitate her marriage. And some of them go so far as stating that she disguised herself as the daughter of Gu Wenxi, who had more connections than her and did not have a connection to a criminal. And I feel reluctant to call him a criminal because obviously it's association with someone else's poetry, but sure. <laughs> that is what it was. Yeah. So around 1824, she met Yihui, the great grandson of Emperor Qianlong. So when he was 20, Yihui inherited the title of Bila or Prince and became a general of Han troops. So he is a big deal. He was a writer too and seems to have penned a lot of poetry in his own right. Also apparently was a keen antique collector and a bit of a scholar. So apparently he learned Sanskrit and Latin, presumably to aid in that collecting. Wow. And was extremely well read and very familiar with Buddhist and Taoist texts. So there's a real clear like intellectual yes. and artistic element from both parts of this partnership. Although I say partnership, they were the same age and she became his second wife or concubine. It's not a straightforward partnership because she is his second wife. Although she's not the second wife for too long, because in 1831, his principal or legal wife, Lady Miaohua, um, died. I don't know what she died of. I think. I feel like I need to give context that we're recording this relatively late at night, GMT, and I've gone a bit loopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in 1831, his legal wife, Lady Miaohua, died. It also seems odd to call her his legal wife. But. Yeah. But there's no suggestion that Gu took her place or attempted to take her place as Yuhui's official wife, possibly because of her background. So she remains his concubine, but he also never marries again. So she is officially his second wife, but unofficially his only wife. So, And it seems like they had a really happy marriage. So they had a mutual interest in literature, as I mentioned which both helped the marriage and helped Gu develop her art. So it's kind of widely accepted that she didn't begin writing in earnest until after their marriage. And they wrote together in, I sort of referred to as a studio, I get the impression it's just a house, but a studio called the Pavilion of Heavenly Wondering, which is, she names her collection mm -hmm. of sea poetry after. I found this a really nice image. The biographical dictionary I read lists some of the things they did together, including, quote, writing poetry, appreciating paintings and practicing calligraphy, riding out to the scenic spots and historic sites around the capital, end quote. That's a really lovely image. Yeah. <laughs> so together they read Taoist texts, dressed in Taoist clothes and attended Taoist 
festivities and rituals where they met important philosophical figures like precept master Jean Cunier of the White Cloud Monastery. So they're really heavily interested in Taoist philosophy and really going all in on mm -hmm. learning more about that and dedicating their lives to that. Um, and their poetry also complemented each other's. So even their hows or out names or pseudonyms kind of match. So one of the names that he went by was Taisul Doran. And as we know, she went by Tai King. So there's that kind of um, rhyming connection. And they had seven children together. Uh, we've covered so many scribblers by now who have seven or so children, but I'm still amazed every time. That's so many children. That's so many. <laughs> yeah. Fair play to them. <laughs> so, yeah, they have seven children together, three sons. So Ji Chao, Tsai Chu, and Tsai Tong, and four daughters, Mengwen, Shunwen, Shuen, and Iwen. Um, but everything didn't really stay so happy in the long term. So Yihui died unexpectedly in 1838. And every source I read just said from an illness. We don't know what illness. We don't know whether it was a, yeah. at the end of a long illness, just died of an illness. Hmm. He had a son, Tsai Chun, by his first marriage. So that son inherited his title. And then three months after Yihui's death, Gu and her children were evicted from the family home. And there's some, there's some kind of speculation about that. There's two stories about why she wasn't allowed to stay in the family home. Um, the first is just that Sai Chun was a tyrant and simply wouldn't let her. And there's some background to that, that basically that Sai Chun was Manchu and was very patriotic about being Manchu and saw Gu as too favorable to Hun culture. Um, so as well as just being, just kicking out his stepmom, there's important cultural things in the background of that. The second story revolves around another prominent poet, Gong Zhizhen. And this theory seems to have been disproved by later scholars, or at the very least, there's little evidence to suggest it was true or likely. But basically, the story there was that Gu was having an affair with him, mm. um, and that's why her stepson kicked her out of the house. And that, yeah, by all accounts, that just seems to be a nice story, and it wasn't true. But yeah, so apparently she is evicted and leaves with four of her children. We don't know what happens to the other three. Um, but fortunately, she has a gold phoenix hairpin that she uses to raise money to buy a home for her and four of her children in Sichuan. That's so bizarre. That's in 1838. It seems like she wasn't away for long. By 1842, she's back in the family home. So whatever disagreement led to her expulsion had presumably been resolved. And it's worth noting that in a lot of the, a lot of the stories about her expulsion, it's the mother-in-law that kicks her out. So um, Yuri's mother. But yeah, her poetry suggests that she's back waiting on his mother in 1840. And she invited a group of female friends to a poetry gathering at the Pavilion of Heavenly Wondering in 1842. She also established a poetry club with her female friends in the autumn of 1839, which seems to have been 
fairly long lasting. I think for the next 30 years they met together. But there's another gap in here in the information I couldn't that I could find. So we know that around half of her extant poems were written in the years between 1839 and 69, so presumably with that poetry club, but little else. In 1837, Sai Chun, so Yihui's son, who um, had inherited the title, died, and he didn't have an heir. So Gu's grandson, Pumei, the eldest son of her eldest son, inherited the title, and that was inherited by his descendants. So according to what I could see, that title is still, if I'd understood it correctly, like is still inherited by one of her descendants now. She died in 1877 and was buried near to Yihui, in Nangu, a suburb of Beijing. So they're back together again. I don't know if the legal wife is buried in the same place. Hmm. Wow. I assumed yes, but... So I appreciate that was a bit of a kind of like... If this was a walking tour, it would be a running tour. It was a very quick tour through her life, but that is honestly the information that I could find in English. Sure, Yeah. That's um that's a lot of interesting things that I yeah that I had not gleaned just from focusing on the poetry but it's really like that that decision to stay his second wife is is really fascinating. Yeah, and there was it was like a sentence in each of them so I really want to know more but it was just oh he didn't marry again so he didn't have another primary wife. But she I I don't get the impression she had a choice to leave or not. Sure. But his choice not to remarry definitely seems interesting. It does. Yeah. I think that, yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and even while, I mean, I guess it speaks to kind of like uh, hierarchies, but like even with hiding her criminal past, she's still the second wife. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting just so much like how much how much we can infer about certain things when we know the cultural background better and how much we can't infer here. Mm-hmm. But I do yeah, I yeah, that that's fascinating like I guess it's maybe political poetry that her grandfather got in trouble for being associated with and then like yeah. I would imagine yeah. so. Because he was also, you know, before this event, was quite high up in government, Mm, mm -hmm. as far as I could tell. But yeah, it's fascinating what you say when, like, because I am so ignorant on this topic and I'm only really, like, my history is not world history, it's British, US and a bit of French, that I have no idea, which is... I don't know. There are a lot of things you could say yeah. coming out of that. We'll see if we can link to any like podcasts about specifically about Chinese history um, or podcast episodes. Cause I know mm-hmm. I've come across some really good ones um, recently that I just need to wrangle up and stick into the transcripts. And I guess it just shows you how this like cultural hegemony just like perpetuates itself. That was very academic speak. But, yeah. Like, how these hierarchies that we buy into just perpetuate themselves. Because if you don't know, you really have to seek things out. And then even if you do, you have to have such privileged access to be able to find these sources. 
Yeah, like, I don't know, I constantly think about this just with U.S. history, like the things we don't learn in school, like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like so many things that are important to like civil rights or just black history in general don't get taught. I was homeschooled, so I got a weird assortment of textbooks, some of which were evangelical textbooks and thus even worse than normal public school ones. And um, I was still like every day stumble across gaps that I have because of that, even though I try to seek out information, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And even if we're talking about like Western history, like I studied a whole module at school on the American civil rights movement. And there was never a mention of the battles of Cable Street or Lewisham or like anti-racism in the UK. Mm. And like the slave trade is covered like this is something that was happening in the colonies and it was bad. And it's like, who started it? It was us. Let's acknowledge that. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, just a general run that I was frustrated by the fact that I couldn't find more and couldn't digest more of what I did find. Yeah. So yeah. If, if anyone has any resources they want to share, you can find us on Twitter at VS underscore podcast. Yes, very, always, I was going to say very, I don't know. We love to hear from people. That's what I was general. trying to say. <laughs> very happy to be corrected on things and be provided with additional information if you have it. Yes. So, should we move on to talking about writing? (laughs) Yeah, so Guta King wrote primarily poetry, but also fiction. Um... In terms of poetry, more specifically, she wrote what's called song lyric or tz poetry. It's spelled C-I. Um, so you might hear it referred to as C poetry, but it's pronounced tz poetry, I think. I did not know that. Yeah, I went down a rabbit hole for that one and watched some um, just um, Chinese instruction videos on YouTube about it. So I'm hoping that I got it right, but... Who knows? Um, and then she also wrote something called shiz poetry, or it's spelled S-H-I, um, which is a general term for poetry, but can also refer to a classical Han Dynasty poems and or poems with verses of equal length. Ooh. So she wrote much more tzu's poetry than shu poetry. Um, and so she's more well known for the song lyric style. She's also known for writing a sequel to a famous 18th century novel. Um, The sequel is titled Shadows of Dream of the Red Chamber. And it is um, the only known extant work of Chinese fiction written by a woman before the 20th century. Oh, wow. Not just the first, like the only. Yes. Yes. Um, it was published under the pseudonym that Eleanor mentioned earlier, Yun Sha Weishi, um, which translates to unofficial scribe of the cloud raft. And really, she was only pinpointed as the author in the 1980s. 
according to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Women in World History. As I mentioned earlier, she also, with her husband, um, painted and practiced calligraphy. So um, before I talk more about sort of the the uh, through lines or themes in her work and the process, I just wanted to um, note a little bit about her reputation and why I kind of called this out at the beginning of this episode. So especially for her poetry, Mm -hmm. um, she is so well recognized. in the 20, even in the 20th century. So like sometimes people fall out of fashion right after the century they're in. Um, even, even in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. um, critics paired her poetic achievements. And I'm quoting, um, the Oxford encyclopedia of women in history here with those of the well-known male Manchu poet, uh, Nelan Zingda. So she was recognized on par with male poets. Um, Pretty much everybody agrees that she surpassed her husband in talent, even though she learned how to write this particular style of poetry during her marriage with him and from him purportedly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so she may not be well known to our listeners in the Western world, but she is very well known and respected in the literary tradition of China. Yeah, the what I read about her kind of partnership with her husband gave me the impression that he was... He maybe had the intellectual, like, understanding of it, but she was creative side of it. Well, he spent a lot of time, yeah, book learning for one of a better word. Yeah, he had the cultural capital to mm. like to, to introduce her to it, right? And then she kind of soared from there. Yeah. So, um, you touched a little bit on travel earlier, and that is mm-hmm. one of the through lines of Gutai King's work. Um, I'm going to quote scholar Wang Yaning, um, who notes that to Gu Tai King, travel is not merely occasional, but represents an important lifestyle throughout her entire life. She composed a great number of poems on travel during her frequent, frequent short excursions. So they're, um, short, uh, mm-hmm. I think really supports your, your theory earlier. Um, quote, her trips took place mostly in the suburbs of the capital, Beijing. During her travels, she often exchanged poems with other poets, including her husband, as well as other female poets. In a sense, it was travel that ignited her passion for recording and commemorating her life events in verse. And that's again by Wang Yaning uh, in a monograph titled Reverie and Reality, Poetry on Travel by Late Imperial Chinese Women. So a lot of the um, a lot of the things that I'm going to tell you today actually come from that monograph. Um, Wang notes that only two of Gu Tai King's poetry collections have survived, and among and so maybe that's why so many of them are uncount, unaccounted for mm. um, because we only know of two. So 800 she poems, or sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 800 poems and more than 300 poems. So those 300 poems are the ones that she's more well known for. But she wrote in a wide variety of styles, as I will um, show you because I'm going to read a few selections of her work later. She did not start writing until her 30s um, during her marriage with Yihui, who was considered a polymath. and as you mentioned, also authored several collections of 
之字 and 字 poetry. Uh, her her zi poetry has what she wrote much more of has really not been studied all that much,、um, and that maybe contributes to her ongoing reput reputation as a song lyricist.、Um, mm -hmm. There's evidence that Gu thought about poetry not only as something that she really loved doing, but as a responsibility. So this is kind of drawn from a poem. <laughs> So again, take it with a grain of salt because、um, even if you are documenting your life in poetry or prose, you're probably fictionalizing it somewhat, right? Even just for style.、Mm -hmm. um, but、um, on a poem written on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, it's kind of unclear. She reviews her poetic achievements of the past year, and、um, and then notes up. Make some notes about her future plans for writing, and this is dated 1835.、Uh, I quote: "A year's worth of poetry debt has been paid off."、Um, the next day, she writes: "Quote: Last year's poetry debt has been paid off. Now I resume my connection with brush and ink of this year." And I think maybe that kind of ties into not only the autobiographical currents of her poetry, but also. The the genres that she wrote in they are deeply tied to history and tradition, and there's this sense of kind of refreshing them and bringing them into a new generation、um, that comes up in her、mm. work. So I think something that I was really struck by in、uh, Wang Yaning's work、um, on on Gu's poetry was this claim that she makes that. Quote, different from the traditional either-or pattern of taking historian's stance or assuming a creative writer's position, Gu Taiking's poems reflect her attempt to combine the two. So she's working with history; she's documenting her reality, but she's also taking this really creative license with it.、Um, and I think, I think what Wang Yaning is pointing out is that this is the quality of her work that helps her surpass the sort of merely.、Um, Formulaic、uh, work that her husband produces.、Mm -hmm. So to get at some of,、mm, so I guess like we have often on this podcast and in this very episode expressed a sort of cautiousness about reading an author's work in an autobiographical light. There is a sort of different history about this in、um, Chinese literature, as you might suspect.、Uh, Wang Yaning cites、um, a, a scholar named Pei Wei Wu, who notes that quote Chinese travel traveler authors often had to struggle between an objective and personal manner originating from historiography and a subjective personal expression. Originating from、uh, Wen,、uh, which has been translated the Bell's Letters,、um, mm. so quote because of the dominant status of historiography in China, objectivity and impersonality in a historian's stance became necessary for claiming an authoritative voice. While most travelers were bound by the Chinese writing tradition to lean toward historiography. Those who contented themselves with short trips to scenic spots could stay completely within the realm of Wen Bell's letters and write short pieces on the beauty of mountains and rivers. 
they were not subject to the exigencies of historiography. So, so really, Gu is doing this really complicated thing of historiography that bucks tradition. Um, yeah. In a way that often resulted in a loss of authority or respect in the literary circles. So she's bringing these two things together by using herself as this sort of, like, instead of making these broad claims of historiography, by making herself the subject of the historiography, she's able to sort of bridge them. And so I think there's something important about thinking about uh, talking explicitly about autobiography in Gu's work in a way that maybe it would be uncomfortable in a Western mode, if that makes sense. I always want to be extra careful with people's names because I do have a name that even other English speakers frequently get wrong. Um, but I based this off a quick Google, so apologies if this is wrong. But um, So the master's thesis that I wrote by Kyle Huang um, was really interesting on this point because she had two different kind of um, two different visions of how Taiking's or Gu's work could be read autobiographically and one was um, the one that really appealed to me was setting it very firmly within the community of women that she was writing with so her women's poetry club um, and I think that's as much as saying don't read things autobiographically kind of, I was going to say for the sake of it, but don't read all literature as autobiographically, as autobiography. I think it's also important to be aware of the image someone's trying to project, which is also a creative thing, right? Like, Yeah. Um, sorry, this isn't a very fully formed, formed thought because I got sidetracked by trying to get the pronunciation right. Yeah, no, but I think that's I think that's accurate. I I'm just really fascinated um, by sort of the way autobiography comes across in the poems. So I'm gonna continue mm. quoting a little bit just to lead into that, and I think yeah, we we can continue on this thread a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so again, this is Wang quoting Pei Pei, and quote. It is true that Gu Taiking chose the poetic form to express her impressions of the excursions that she took, uh, yet she did not completely stay within the realm of Bell's letters. Instead, she regularly took historian's stance, trying to make facts clear to readers. The combination accords her poems both lyrical expression and narrative notes, projecting both the subjective and the objective. Gu's poems constantly provide dates and other factual information to mark a particular event. These types of data successfully transmit the author's strong desire to record her personal life story and to be understood by others. I, I, I'm going to, like, maybe, maybe that's what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's something else, right? But, um, but just to give you an example of what that looks like, here is a, here is a title. And, and there are lots of titles like this in her um, body of work. On the 19th day of the second month, I, together with my husband and children, stayed at Sanzi Temple. Twelve years ago, I once accompanied the deceased dame to visit this place. Today, when I revisit it, the mountain path remains the same, but people and events differ from the past. 
Alas, not a single companion from the past is left, and to vent my emotions, I have composed the following three pentasyllabic poems. So that's a, that's a title. <laughs> it's a very, very 19th century title, just the length, <laughs> you know? Um, yes. But so I think she's situating, a lo- and, and other, other titles of hers um, will point readers to poems by her husband or by other poets that she corresponded with. And so mm-hmm. she's situating her work very specifically within the context of her life and the things that she's saying. Yeah. So I think calling it autobiographical in that way is not being derivative in the way that such remarks often are and that it's a very uh, a very strategic move on her part yeah um sorry let me sub <laughs> to kind of as as wong um notes to kind of um take the form of a poem about an excursion or a poem about a lake right and to then give it historiogra- uh, historiographical sorts of um, significance in a way that um, lake poems or song lyrics didn't always have or weren't always perceived to have. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So I guess when I'm saying like don't read it all as autobiographical, it's more, um, I guess, this this feels like it should be my catchphrase at this point. I'm like, have some nuance about it. Because the like the the argument that compelled me to be like maybe don't read everything as autobiographical, give a a snippet of it was that I looked over the lake. Yeah. And it was maybe you did, maybe you were thinking about a lake that you knew was important to your friend. Yeah. And that's also yeah. like a valid thing to want to talk about. Yeah, I think I think when we say don't read things autobiographically, we're condensing two different things actually. And one is that mm-hmm. the, the 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 thing that you should be very cautious about reading a work and saying, "Oh, this contains accurate pieces of the author's life." Um, whereas all writing is always kind of situated within an author's life. And some writing very strategically depicts itself as situated in an in an author's life. Yeah, and so like I think those are two separate things, right? Of like, and then and then the whole third thing of women are often considered to only write about themselves, no matter what they're actually writing about, which is a, definitely a harmful stereotype. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, she's also writing about Taoism in a way that's accessible, like really, you know, like. Mm-hmm creative and accessible and contemporary so yeah so um i don't really talk about her process that much um other than to say that she wrote you know really collaboratively with her husband supposedly um we don't know kind of the shape that collaboration took or if it was more like he introduced her to the form and then she like (laughs) just you know took it and ran with it um but they do seem to have a very, I don't want to say like Percy and Mary Shelley kind of relationship, but they do seem to have a very strong connection in terms of the arts um, and to really thrive on discussing it with each other and to have that inspire their work later. And in fact, many of her poems do um, sort of gesture to like, this should rhyme with my the, this piece that my husband wrote or those sorts of things. So yeah, so with all that, I think I was going to share 
a few different pieces that um, I was able to find. Um, so we were talking before we started recording about the difficulty of finding English translations of Gu Tai King's work. There are some, most of them date to the 90s, and um, you have to find used editions. They seem to be out of print. So um, we're not necessarily going to point you to, we may point you to like one anthology, but it, it, it would be hard to find. So we thought we'd share maybe a, a little bit more than normal in this episode. Um, okay, so are, are you ready for a little poetry salon? Yes. Cool. So this one is titled, After my late husband's death, I had no desire to write verses. Reading his posthumous works by the wintry window, I find many verses we exchanged with each other. What strikes the eye stirs deep feelings. It is hard to forget lifelong bonds, so I write down a few words. Not that I dare complain, but to record misfortunes in my life, shown to my sons, Zhao and Chu. Um, so the unfortunate thing of like finding these in a dissertation is that the date wasn't always given and I am not sure which style this is written in, but I, <laughs> yeah, so I'll just say that. <laughs> um, so here's the poem. Dusky sky, it's going to snow. Sitting round the stove under the south eave, I open a book and read your poems. So stricken, I can't even cry out. Ah, this failing, ailing body, eyes blurred by too many tears. Since you became an immortal, you've flown back to the Jade Palace. Our sons, clumsy and naughty, our daughters still babies. Even a dow of grain, a foot of cloth, are sometimes hard to manage. This humble room in a mean alley feels no different than an empty gully. Boo-hoo, the children cry. Shaken, stirred. My heart is grieved. How many times I've wished to join you, but I dare not make light of this life. Not because I cherish myself, but because I must teach our children. So I'm really reminded of like the work of Evan Boland, um, Irish contemporary, Irish poet, um, and the sort of, and also of Queen Victoria. <laughs> this like, yeah, this extended mourning. Um, yeah. So in, in a lot of ways, it is this kind of quintessential 19th century work in that, like, I think a lot of the world at that time is, you know, seeing traditional ways of being and knowing changing really rapidly for a variety of reasons, like the train or other technologies. Um, and so like, even, you know, the relationship to death changes too in that, in that time. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a later poem, not an early poem, um, to start with a real downer. And then here's another, um, kind of middle of life poem. So this is after 10 years of writing. It's called my 40th birthday. I cannot control various feelings from my heart, thinking of my parents today and shedding tears in vain. No messages arrived for several years after the geese left. My poetry volume grows with each passing year. Beautiful springtime passes by quickly like flowing water, frightening human affairs equal to bubbles on water. How can I stand to recall my childhood once again? Are there any dreams about the past and the east wind? I think I accidentally read a little bit of that because we were both trying to avoid each other's. Yeah. 
because I read a bit about that and I think the person had interpreted the geese as being her brother. Interesting. That that strikes me as a hilarious image, but I I don't know if it's just like, you know, because of the influence of untitled goose game. And, <laughs> yeah, the untitled goose game. <laughs> okay. So this one I'm pretty sure is an example of a song lyric poem because it tells us a tune at the beginning. So these were, I think, meant to be sung. Um, and so they'll often reference a tune. Um, this one is referencing the old Tipplers tune and is titled, Inscribed upon Yun Lin's painting, Lake Moonlight Pervades a Zither. Far and slow, endless sky, pellucid depths, vague like mists, no border, pure light coruscating, brimmingly bright. There's a beauty, a flying sylph. Silent, mute, sleeves rolled, hasten droning strings, shine on a droopy willow, hoary toad rays on the bias. I admire your intent aimed at flowing water, lofty alp. I ask you at such moments, does your mood fix on alps, on water? Clouds move on, heavens broaden. Moon shines on, dewdrops abound. Light on frets, plucking legato. Dharma tune dispersed to our world. Night steeps in scented haze, not from orchid or musk. And here's another one uh, which references a tune, Sand of Silk Washing Stream, and it's called Written on a Mid-Autumn Day. Have you noticed the autumn chill out of the tower? Take a look. It is chrysanthemum time again. Half windows of bright sun. Shadows are moving fast. Many days have already gone with few days left. How joyful upon coming. How sad upon leaving. Just pour nice brew facing the pure moonlight. I think that one's my favorite. <laughs> Between the autumn and like the tea. I really like that one. Such a nice image. Yeah. It's so evocative. In the moonlight. And then here's one that kind of speaks to that historiographical bent in her poetry. It's called Written on the Night of the 13th of the Ninth Lunar Month, a leap month. In the year of Rinchen, 1832. Don't spend your daytime idly. Time doesn't stay. Reading is truly beneficial. To observe life profoundly and endlessly. Melons and fruits still hanging cold. Cobwebs gradually shrink in the cool weather. Human feelings and innate laws of things frequently been sought in quietness. I mean, I had to include that one just for the line, reading is truly beneficial, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. This is the one that you might be able to find if you Google online, but it has a slightly different um, translation than the one I found just kind of floating around on the internet. And I, I liked this translation. Um, not that I can really speak at all to its accuracy, <laughs> but um it is in a scholarly source instead of just on a page with a black background and neon green text. So I'm going to guess it might be the more accurate one. And I will close this section on writing with this poem. So this is another of her lyric, uh, a song lyric poems. It's called Tune, wa Wave Washing the Sands. And the title is written perfunctorily. <laughs> Lives compete endlessly, post horses and farm cattle. No grief emerges on eyebrows of Taoists. 
holding a book at ease and sitting by my window. What else will one desire? Time is flowing slowly. Years are hard to keep back. A hundred years later, all people become earthen mantu. Pack and place body and heart in a peaceful place. Push the boat downstream. Wow. It's like, it makes me think of The Great Gatsby, except it's so much better. Like that that push the boat downstream is like, <laughs> I also hate The yes. Great Gatsby with a violent <laughs> I hate it so much. But I think that captures such a like, un- like it's such a, somehow a trite thing to say, but like it just captures such a universal, like everyone has felt that at some point. Yeah. But it captures it so beautifully. It does. Yeah. I mean, it feels like so modern and I mean modern like not like 2020 but like the way the world changes in the 19th century and things get so fast Mm -hmm. and yeah that whole lives compete endlessly that's such a such a 19th century experience that I think we still feel today but yeah it just I mean that and then the whole push the boat downstream like I don't know it's I would love to think about this in in like connection to something like the Lady of Shalott. Yeah, and simultaneously being I don't know, capturing the grief and then being like, oh, but in a hundred years. That's a really nice one to end on as well. Excellent selection. Yeah, so that's what we know about the life and work of Gutai King, who yeah, is a not so lesser known 19th century scribbler yeah not not so lesser known but still lesser known in the british and american context and should be better known yes yeah so maybe keep an eye out in used bookstores um for anthologies of 19th century chinese women writers um we'll put a couple of titles in our show notes that you might be able to track down so Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you in a month. I'm trying to not say see you next time because we won't see anyone. We'll never see anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Victorian Scribblers has researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio.